Um, I want to welcome all of you here today, and especially anybody who's brand new with us. And we're starting a brand new series today, and the series is on what the Bible has to say about justice. And before we start, I actually have a little message about church membership, something that we don't talk about very much here. And, uh, and so, but um, I videotaped it so that we can use it in other formats. So here we go. Hey, Fibos family. I want to tell you about a surprising ingredient to happiness according to a social scientist named Dan Gilbert. And you can judge for yourself whether he's right. Gilbert concluded, c conducted a number of experiments. In one of them, he had one group that were given two choices between these two things. They would choose one and then lose the other for good. Then another group were offered the same two things, but they were told if you regret at some point in the future your choice, you can exchange what you chose for the other thing. Overwhelmingly, the group that had to keep the one thing and never be able to exchange it were happier with their choice than the ones who were able to keep their options open. Bottom line, experiment after experiment, Gilbert said, making a commitment generally leads to greater happiness. His experiments and his conclusions were so powerful that he said this. He said, if you're a scientist and you don't live by your own results, what kind of a scientist are you? So I went home and proposed to my girlfriend of 10 years. And guess what? I was utterly right. I love her so much more than now that we're married, now that I can't get out of this relationship no matter how fast I run. She is the love of my life. And I didn't realize that when I was thinking, should I stay or shouldn't I stay? There's a lot to be said for making commitments. That's what he said. There's a lot to be said for making commitments. And Jesus said a lot about making commitments, commitments to him and to his people. Now compare that with the findings from a recent Gallup poll that shows that membership in churches has dropped dramatically in the last 20 years, from about 70% to less than 50%. Of course, it's part of a much larger trend away from making commitments of any kind. And I don't think that trend, I really don't think that trend is making people happier. Do you? Membership in churches is more undervalued now by Christians than at any other time. And our church leadership team has even come to the conclusion that we don't talk about it enough. And that doesn't serve our congregation well. But membership is important and it matters because choosing to become a member says, I can be counted on and I want a deeper connection. I even want my church community to have a higher expectation of me. At Five Oaks, only members get to teach our kids or our students in lead positions. Only members vote on our future and our plans. Only members serve in our leadership of ministries like the board and elders and small groups. And this is because in the membership process, we personally share our commitment to Christ and our deep desire to live grace-fueled, gospel-centered lives with the help of our church community. How do you become a member of Five Oaks? Well, it starts by taking the story of God course because we want our congregation to be biblically literate and growing in their faith. And we lay the foundation for that in that course. The second step is our one-hour membership orientation and then a meeting with one of our elders. And that's it. Our next orientation is coming up uh, pretty soon, in the next two to four weeks. So I'm calling you to join our team. Make a commitment. It's good for you, and it's good for God's kingdom. If you want more information, simply write membership on your Connect card or email the office at office at fiveoakschurch.org. That's office at fiveoakschurch.org and just say, tell me more about membership. All right, so a little word about masks here as well. Um, so vast majority of people uh, are done with masks or want to be done with masks. 
But some families and individuals are choosing to still wear masks uh, until they're vaccinated, and others just until they're comfortable not wearing masks. And so I, I want to be just frank with you about a couple, a couple of things. We don't have a problem, by the way, uh, with this, but I just I wanted to avert a problem coming down. But I want to be frank with you for a moment. Um, I, for one, am sick and tired of getting all of your colds, <laughs> because I do. Uh, I used to shake hands a lot before COVID, and um, a little bit less now, and apparently I have no immune system, because I, the year before COVID, I got like everything. I had a four-week cold where I lost my taste for three or four weeks, lost 10 pounds. I had a friend say, you ought to gain those 10 pounds back, you're looking a lot older. And I did. I didn't have to work at it. It just came back naturally. But um, all that to say that some people are going to be making different decisions after, you know, post-COVID in our post-COVID world than maybe they made before. Uh, some people may start wearing masks when they're feeling under the weather, for example. When I was in Japan some years ago, I uh, saw people wearing masks, and this was, this was 13, 14 years ago. And I said, you know, why are those people wearing masks? Are they afraid of germs? They said, no, no, those people are the sick ones. And they wear masks when they're in Subway and various things like that. So some people are going to be making choices uh, like that in their, in their lives. And uh, some people may wear masks during the flu season as a precaution. Um, as for me, I think, I don't know if I'll go through with this, but I think I'm going to wear a mask if I'm feeling under the weather in the future. Um, I prefer not to shake hands anymore, I, even though I still do, I do this to most people. I'm trying to learn to do this. And, um, and, and do that because I'm, I, I discovered that when they said, when COVID first started, they said, keep your hands away from your face. I am like a monkey. My hands are in my eyes and in my mouth all the time. And so um, I, I wouldn't mind fist bumping for the rest of my life if I could only remember to do that. So all that to say, again, we don't have a problem, but all that to say, different people are making different choices. Let's re be respectful of each other's choices. All right? So... We're starting this brand new series on justice today. And since understanding the Bible and God's purposes for our lives shouldn't be a mystery, I want to encourage you to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. Very first book of the Bible and very first chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you and you want to follow along, there's a Bible in the seat rack in front of you. You can grab one of those. Just turn to the very first page of the story and you'll be there. So, I don't need to say this, but justice, social justice, it is a huge, hugely popular topic today in our world and hugely controversial. Um, it just so happens, though, that justice is a hugely prominent subject in the Bible from the very beginning all the way to the end of the Bible. And justice in the Bible is always social justice. It's always social justice because it deals with how people treat each other in relationships, so it's social. It has to do with the structures and the systems that God sets up for humanity, but humanity also sets up for itself. Things like government and commerce and law and education. So as with any other word or any other concept or idea, how are culture where we live every single day, the places where we work, our neighbors, all of that, what we watch on television, our culture talks about justice, our culture when it talks about justice and how the Bible talks about it doesn't completely overlap, all right? So the terms may be being used uh, frequently, but when the Bible uses it, when 
individuals use it in our society, they may be using it in different ways. They don't completely match in their meaning. There's a simple reason, but there is a lot of overlap. There's a lot of overlap when people talk about justice on a daily basis and the Bible talks about justice. And the reason for this is simple and historical. It is, it is almost impossible to refute this, yet some people do. But the reality is that our culture, in fact, to a great degree, our entire world today gets its idea, its basic idea of justice and personal rights that people have, personal rights, from the Bible. Now, not directly, but it comes through the influence of biblical ideas that have basically won the day with regard to justice, have won the day over all other ideas, and have spread throughout the entire planet. So, what our world wants, the reality is what our world wants, it wants the idea of human dignity, but the place where it comes from is in the Scripture, in what the Bible teaches. It doesn't come from science. There's nothing in science that would suggest that humans have a particular place in this world and should have that, you know, that they have a particular worth above other living things. You're not going to get it from traditional cultures because traditional cultures do not consider all, if you're not in their, their tribe, their family, their kinship, you are not as equal uh, outside of that. And it doesn't come from other religions. It's rooted, the idea of human dignity is rooted in the Bible. But in the words of Mark Sayers, our world wants the kingdom, the kingdom of God, without the king. It wants part of God's values without the God who gives us those values. So there's a lot of overlap between social justice in the Bible and social justice in current society. So I'm preaching on the subject for the next six weeks. The reason I'm doing this is because I have a pastoral concern on this issue. And there's really two sides to my concern. Most Christians, to me, seem to me to be unaware of how much the Bible talks about justice and what it says about social justice. So what happens sometimes is they begin to buy into some unbiblical ideas about social justice. They start melding the two together as if, you know, these ideas that are out here in our, you know, in our world that we're breathing in are the same ones of what the Bible is talking about. And so in buying into some of those ideas, some of those ideas, their foundations and assumptions are fundamentally incompatible with the Bible's ideas and with the Bible's ideas about justice. So when Christians buy into these ideas, and adopt assumptions that are fundamentally incompatible with the Bible, uh, what happens is sometimes they walk away from a biblically-centered faith, a biblically-centered faith that's, that's focused on Jesus and focused on the gospel. And for some, for some, social justice becomes almost like a god in their life, becomes like an idol in their life. So at the same time, some other Christians who have a very strong desire to be true to Scripture in everything, but not knowing what the Bible says about social justice, they begin to equate any talk about social justice with what they know are unbiblical ideas. And so when that happens, when it gets really bad, what happens is they go on witch hunts. And there are all kinds of witch hunts happening right now within churches, within Christian organizations, 
uh, trying to root out anybody who has any unbiblical ideas about social justice, not even knowing what the Bible says about social justice. And what winds up happening time and again is that some of these people end up slandering, by a biblical definition, end up slandering other Christians um, by what they are saying. It makes productive conversation on this almost impossible to have. So one group is in danger of walking away from genuine biblical faith, and the other group is in danger of missing God's directives on justice, on what God actually says about justice, or of poisoning the well of Christian community so that there is divisiveness and division within churches, and it's happening everywhere, and it's, it's ugly. It's really, really ugly. Now, this can make even doing a series like this very difficult. Some might suspect that as I'm talking about what the Bible says, that I'm not justice enough, that I'm not going far enough in what I'm going to be saying. Other people are going to uh, be afraid that I'm maybe sneaking in some unbiblical ideas and that I might be doing it naively or I might be doing it purposely. So all the more reason to address what the Bible says about justice, which is a lot. It's a huge topic in the Bible. So the goal of this series is to build a better understanding of social justice from a biblical point of view so that we can seek justice, and the Bible tells us to do that, and we can stand against injustice, and the Bible tells us to do that, and we can do it together, united, in a way that glorifies God and demonstrates love for our neighbor. Now, this is a Story of God series. If you saw the title uh, slide here underneath, it said a Story of God series. Story of God, if you're brand new with us, is a course that we ask everyone at Five Oaks to go through. Hopefully, we like people to go through it as soon as possible because it gives an overview of the whole Bible. We take the Bible and we break it down into 10 scenes, and it just gives a framework of being able to understand the whole Bible story so that you can go from being basically biblically illiterate, and in six weeks, you can know all the major stories, how the Bible tells the story, and the, the whole flow of the whole story and what, it, what the whole story is about. So we start with creation, and then we go to separation, and we go through these scenes all the way to new creation, which is, uh, is, comes in at the, towards the end of the story. So uh, knowing that this is a controversial topic, I took my first draft of my introduction and where I was going with this series, and I sent it to several Five Oaks members. I sent it to our governing board. I sent it to our elders, and I said, give me feedback on this. And one of them wrote back this. He said, I think Micah 6.8 is a great anthem for this series. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. And then he goes on to say, as the emotions and passions related to justice and injustice rise within us, we find ourselves stopping halfway through this short list of required actions and then running full speed into acting on justice. I forget... When I do that, I forget the essential sporting actions of loving mercy and walking humbly. He says, discussions on this topic uh, is blown up when we remove humility from the required actions. When we feel the temperature rise within us, this awareness is a gift from the Holy Spirit. It's an opportunity to test our emotions against the source of truth. Am I loving mercy? Am I walking humbly? I, when I got that from him, I said, I got to use that because that's a good word as we go into this series. Uh, this series doesn't have to be divisive. It doesn't have to be controversial even. 
Um, this is my hope. Christians, my hope is that Christians can be united in a concern for biblical justice without, this is important, without always agreeing on the solutions to injustice. That we can and we will. It's just guaranteed. I mean, that's just a fact of life. We will always have disagreements on that. And we might all even sometimes disagree, many times actually, on what constitutes injustice in our world. So if we don't agree completely on everything, on not even what constitutes injustice, what's the point? Well, the point is that we would walk humbly in unity and learn from each other. Always. To always be learning from each other. That we would think and speak and act in ways that reflect God's priorities revealed in the Scripture. Even when we disagree with each other, and that we would act on our convictions. And in this way, we're going to be what Christ called us to be, which is salt and light in our world. All right, so before we jump into the Bible and into the sermon, we're going to pray as we always do for the Spirit to illuminate His Word. And this prayer is specifically from Colossians chapter 2, so please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, encourage our hearts today. Remind us of the unity that we have with your church around the world as we, along with our brothers and sisters in Christ, look to your word to teach us and to guide us. By your Holy Spirit, give us understanding. May our knowledge of you through Christ, who is the word, strengthen and build our faith as we continue to walk in him. As we look at the subject of justice, help us not be like the religious leaders whom Jesus accused of neglecting justice. Help us to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's hear our scripture being read uh, by some of our five oakers. Genesis 1, 26 to 29. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I gave you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. Genesis 2, 8-9 Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2, 16 to 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. All righty. Um, here's what we're going to do today. 
So we're going to begin by looking at some basic definitions that are going to guide us through this series, some key words. What does justice mean in Scripture? How is it used in various contexts? Uh, what do some other related terms mean as well? And then we're going to see how it relates to the first two scenes of the Bible uh, from Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. Uh, right at the outset of the story of God. But before we start, we're going to watch the Bible Project video, uh, their theme video on justice. And while you're watching, we'll watch it more than once during the series, but while you're watching it, uh, be looking at two things. Look at the definitions. Listen for the definitions of justice and watch and see how they tie uh, justice into the creation story and the story of the separation that happens in Genesis chapter 3. So let's watch that video. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that, but we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use, but what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, 
and sets the prisoner free, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. All right, so some definitions. Um, here's my paraphrase of Tim Mackey's definition. Tim Mackey is a theologian behind um, all of these videos, all the Bible Project videos. He's the one with the, uh, I just always say, the quirkier voice of the two guys. And um, so this is my paraphrase. It's justice is about treating all people with dignity and fairness because hum humans are equal before God. Now, in the video that we just saw, there are transcript notes, there are footnotes, uh, lots of extra scripture, some extra ideas. One of the things that's in there is Tim Mackey makes this point. He says, this idea of justice is a unique Jewish-Christian contribution to the history of human civilization. For, for contrast, the entire Greek-Roman political system was built on the concept that all humans were not created equal. All the way back to Aristotle, he argued that only rational humans which did not include slaves, were equal. Therefore, slavery was deemed just and right. So uh, there's a historian that's written, recently written a book. I was reading a review about it. And what he makes is a case 
that Christianity succeeded so well in establishing human rights as a universal value all around the world that the world has kept the value and said, we don't need Christianity. It's unnecessary. So the Hebrew word for justice, you saw it written in Hebrew, but in, uh, in a transliteration is mishpat. That's mishpat. That's the word for justice. It occurs more than 400 times in the Old Testament alone. Now, if you're wondering, is that a lot? Because there's a lot of words in the Old Testament. Yes. A, a concept that would be repeated over 400 times is a high, high number. And if you take related terms like righteousness, another 125, 130 times, and other terms, the number goes way, way up. So the Old Testament and the whole Bible talk about treating all people with dignity and fairness because humans are of equal value before God. So what does the Bible say when justice is violated, situations where people are treated unfairly, um, where uh, fairness of, of, of where fairness and dignity just kind of goes out the window, where people are not treated as being of equal value. When that happens, the Bible says that as Christians, and certainly Christians in places of influence, we are to apply mishpat. We are to apply justice to the situation um, in order to rectify, in order to fix the injustice or to restore justice to people who aren't experiencing it. Now, this is really important because the Bible talks about justice in two different ways, and they were introduced in the video. So the first one is retributive justice. So retributive justice is about rectifying a situation by making someone pay for doing wrong. So you do something wrong, you pay a price. You go to jail. You might have your life taken from you by the authorities. You may have to pay back something that you stole. And you're not just going to pay back what you stole. You're going to pay back extra for the trouble that you caused to everybody by stealing and by having to go through that entire, in, entire case. Now, when I say that Christians are basically unaware, in my opinion, are basically unaware of what the Bible says about justice, it's not this kind of justice. I think like the whole world knows that the Bible speaks of retributive justice, uh, sometimes not liking what the Bible says about retributive justice. But here's the kicker. Only about one in 10 passages about justice in the Bible are about retributive justice. One in 10. That means the other nine out of 10, 90%, are, are a different kind of justice, and it's a different kind of justice that we, I don't think, as Christians, are often very well aware of. It's restorative justice. And so restorative justice is about making sure that people are treated equally and fairly and given an opportunity to flourish. So in the story of God, which is a term we use to describe the whole Bible. Restorative justice is about getting us as close as possible to the way things are supposed to be, Genesis 1 and 2, and the way it was before sin entered the world in Genesis 3, a time of human flourishing. Now, I'm going to tell you, justice, the word justice does not occur in Genesis 1 and 2 or Genesis 3, but the concept is there. So I want to show you a little bit. In our Story of God course, um, that we try to get just about everybody to go through at Five Oaks at some point. Uh, it all starts with the first scene of Genesis 1 and 2, which is the scene of creation. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we're told that God's creation, everything that he creates is good. 
So the earth is good, the plants, the animals, the humans, it's all good. It says it over and over again. And the picture that is painted there is that in Eden, you have perfect harmony between all human beings and between humanity and God. Uh, there's, there's even a perfect harmony between humans and the earth and the things of the earth. Now, later in the Bible, this, there's a term that's used to describe this perfect harmony, and it's a term that you're probably familiar with. It's a Hebrew word, shalom. We translate it as peace. When you hear the word peace, one of the mistakes that we make in trying to kind of import our English ideas into the Hebrew idea of peace is we think of peace as being like ceasing conflict, all right? So we're having a fight, now we've made peace, we're not fighting anymore. We were in a war and uh, we made peace, we're not throwing bombs at each other anymore. But the Bible the, the, uses the idea of peace more often to mean the way things are supposed to be. So there's a theologian who's written an entire book on this, and he says shalom really is the way things are supposed to be. So the word justice never occurs in Genesis 1 and 2. So three reasons why we start with Genesis 1 and 2. The first is that the idea of justice is introduced in Genesis 2 for the very first time. And so look at verse 8. Of chapter 2, it says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put a man that he had formed. The Lord God made all trees, uh, all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now skip down to verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. All right? So Adam has a choice, doesn't he? Um, his choice, Adam's choice, is he can live in shalom, in this just world, a world where all humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness, a world of human flourishing, a world where people actually do treat each other that way, or he can choose not to trust God and experience retributive justice for bringing evil and death into paradise. So the idea is not, Adam, don't eat from that tree, because if you eat from that tree, it'll poison you and it'll kill you. Uh, we know he ate from it, and he lived for many years uh, after that. So the death that comes is not like just a, a natural response. It is God's retributive justice that he brings down on Adam for the mess that he makes of our entire world. So the concept of justice is right there, right from the very beginning. Another reason to start at the very beginning is that the Bible ties justice to human dignity, the kind of human dignity that is established in Genesis 1. So Genesis 1 says, we are made in the image of God. And later in the Bible, uh, in many places, it ties doing justice to that reality. So just a few chapters later in Genesis 9, this is what it says. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall, shall their blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made mankind. In other words, you don't murder 
And if you do, there's going to be retributive justice. Why? Because you're made in the image of God. James has a variation on that, more of how we like slay each other with our tongues. And he says, with the tongue, we praise the Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in the image of God. Why not curse a human being? Because a human being is made in the image of God. Notice it doesn't say, because we were, like at one time, we were made in the image of God and we messed that up in Genesis 3. We messed that up with our own sins. It doesn't say that. It means that the most corrupted person on this earth still carries within them the image of God. So in a sermon called The American Dream, Martin Luther King Jr. said this. He said, you see, the founding fathers were really influenced by the Bible. The whole concept of the Imago Dei, as it is expressed in Latin, the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from the trouble white to the base black is significant on God's keyboard, precisely because every man is made in the image of God. One day, we will learn that. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. This is why we must fight segregation with all of our nonviolent might. All human beings are equal in status, equal in worth before God, and have the right to be treated with dignity because we're made in the image of God. One more reason we look back to creation. Genesis 3 happens, that's why. Genesis 3. Uh, because restorative justice is introduced in Genesis 3, we'll see that in a moment, and it becomes a thread that goes through the whole story of God. The, the, the video kind of captures that. So I, why I think if I folks we love the Bible Project videos is because that's what they do. They're always looking at threads through the entire story, not just picking verses and, um, and misusing verses. And so we have this whole story that goes all the way up to Jesus and then beyond Jesus to the new creation. So the second scene in the Bible, we call it separation. Adam and Eve eat from the tree that God said not to eat from. Adam and Eve choose wanting to be like God, which is what the temptation. So the serpent says to them, you can be like God if you will eat from this tree. That's why he doesn't want you to eat from it. And they choose to eat from that and be like God rather than trusting God and letting God be God. So a separation takes place between God and humanity and all relations, relationships are impacted by that in a negative way. But right there in Genesis 3, uh, restorative justice, that whole idea of restorative justice is introduced. And it's, um, it's not all about retributive justice and God's curse on the serpent and the consequences for Adam and Eve for having eaten of that tree. So if you'll look at chapter 3, beginning of verse 14, God pronounces a curse on the serpent. Now, if you read on, you read the consequences of this, but God doesn't curse the man and he doesn't curse the woman, but he curses the serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, now notice it's in poetic fashion, okay? If you look in your Bibles, it's laid as poetic verse because it's got all the markings of Hebrew poetry. 
So this is what he says to the serpent. Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. But I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In our story of God, of course, I always like to make a point. This is not talking about, I think you get the sense that this is not talking about snakes. All right, something more is going on here. And the something more is really the rest of the story of the Bible that's happening here. Because what God is saying is, he's saying he's, he's basically the serpent represents rebellion, evil, uh, that comes and lures humanity away from God and from following God's way and from shalom and all of that. And, and it puts it really interesting. I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So a day is coming when a descendant of the woman is going to crush the head of evil. That's the story. Of, that's the whole story. Uh, that's the Bible story in a nutshell. But when that descendant of the woman crushes the head of evil, that descendant will also experience the serpent's bite. It's, it's the first teaching of the gospel. It's the first teaching of what God's plan is to restore humanity. It's about restorative justice, about bringing human flourishing. Read the last two chapters of the Bible, and all you see is a situation of human flourishing in the new heavens and the new earth. Can we talk about justice in the church and in our families without being uh, divisive, without abandoning biblical values? I think, I think we can if we know what the Bible says about justice. Uh, <clears throat> and so what we're trying to do today more than anything is just lay the groundwork for what we're going to be seeing in um, the next few weeks. Essentially, I tried to show you today that the whole story of the Bible is about justice, particularly restorative justice. The whole story is about justice because justice, restorative justice is about restoring shalom, the way things are supposed to be, harmony in relationships, harmony between humans and God and with each other. When we treat people with dignity, when we treat people with fairness because they are made in the image of God, we're living out God's values. When we do that personally, we're living out God's values. And when we advocate on behalf of others, on their behalf, when we have positions of influence or we can influence people and advocate who are not being treated with dignity and fairness, we're doing justice. We can do it personally. We can do it corporately, structurally in our world. So with that as a groundwork laid, we're going to continue to build a better understanding of what social justice is from a biblical point of view so that we can seek justice and stand up against injustice together in a way that glorifies God and demonstrates love for our neighbor. So let's learn and talk about justice in a way that is uniting and centered on the Bible. Now, um, I want to just share with you a, a story 
of, of restorative justice uh, that is in a resource that we gave our daily life writers um, for this series. So it's, it's about a church in London. It's called um, Holy Trinity Brompton. And if you've ever heard of the Alpha Course, ever gone through the Alpha Course, it's gone all over the world. Millions of people have taken it. It started in this church uh, in London. <clears throat> and so they were going to hold this big worship event. And I think because of the church's influence plus the people that they were having coming for this worship event, uh, they were going to have to get outside of here. They weren't going to fit in here. And they went ahead and rented the Royal Albert Hall, which is this beautiful concert hall uh, that uh, is in London. And the problem is that more people signed up for the event than what they had seats for. So they needed every seat in the house in order to get them in. Uh, but the royal seats are always off limits for outside groups to use. So they decided to ask Buckingham Palace for permission to use them. It was a big ask because they're special private balconies that are reserved for royals and for heads of state and um, you know, presidents have sat in there and all of that. Um, but they asked anyways. They weren't very hopeful, but they asked anyways. But Buckingham Palace said yes. They said yes, under one condition. You take your most esteemed people, your dignitaries that come to this, and they're the ones that get to sit up there. So the church organizers wrote back after the event had happened, and uh, they wanted to thank the queen for her generosity. And they wrote that, yes, they had seated their most honored guests in the royal boxes. It's where they put all the homeless people would wanted to attend the event. Now, the book that uh, tells this story says this, as Christians, we're called to look at people through the eyes of God, not of humanity. The creation story teaches that we all are held in God's highest esteem. So, in, in other words, they could have put the most esteem, they could have put the homeless, they were making a point, of course. The creation story teaches that we are all held in God's highest esteem, whether or not the world sees it in that way. In God's eyes, the queen and the homeless man are worthy of the same care and respect because of the image of God. We can learn to talk and think about doing justice in a way that unites us. We can do this centered on the grand scheme of biblical justice, the big vision that God gives us for biblical justice and peace. All right, so we begin right now our response to God's word, and we do so by celebrating communion together. As we celebrate communion, I want, to, I want us to think about Genesis 3, 15 again. Because here you have this, this descendant of a woman who is going to come and is going to crush the head of the serpent but experience the bite of the serpent. And so Jesus, this descendant, this descendant of the woman, truly God and truly man, takes the bread of Passover with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Let's eat it together. And he takes the cup of Passover. And he says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. And we remember that every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming the gospel. We're proclaiming the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God of justice, 
that you care enough about us uh, to protect us, to give us the conditions for human flourishing, that you have not given up on us, but that you're willing to become. We thank you, God, that you are willing to become a man and experience death, death on a cross for our sakes. Help us to live in that reality. Help us to live in that grace. And may your, your concerns and your priorities be lived in our lives by your power and your strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.